We're going to pick up where we left off last time I spoke with church number seven of the seven churches of Asia. Revelation chapter three, we'll be picking up at verse 14. Now, Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing, as we always do, to just acknowledge that apart from Jesus, we can't understand these things. We need him and his Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart so that we could see these truths, understand them, put them into practice, and be blessed. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. After going for an extended run on a hot summer day some uh, years ago, I was very, very thirsty. And all I could imagine was guzzling down some refreshing cold water down that parched throat of mine. And I thought I would drink forever and ever. You know those moments where you just think, I'm never going to be quenched. I got to the house, and in the front, of course, was the garden hose. So I couldn't wait. I went to the hose, and I turned on the spigot, and... I heard that glorious hiss start up and out flowed this beautiful sight of crystal gold. <laughs> I put my lips into position and opened wide and filled my mouth with the nastiest warm water I've ever tasted. You know with that rubber hose aftertaste? <laughs> no fun at all. Needless to say, I spit that water right out of my mouth. There's nothing worse than lukewarm water of any kind when you're really thirsty. Now, some of you are already ahead of me. Jesus will use this very word picture to get his point across to the last church of the seven congregations he addresses here in the opening chapters of Revelation, the church at Laodicea. Now, before describing the Great Tribulation, which is essentially the last seven years of planet Earth, uh, from Revelation 6 to 19, before we get there, the Lord wants to talk to his people here and now. Uh, in essence, he's saying, I'll tell you how it will all end, but your concern, your first concern is me, your Lord, and living that new creation and that new life with me. That's why the letters come first. And so here, uh, the seven letters, the seven churches that the Holy Spirit has selected, the number seven, the perfect, complete depiction of the church from the day of Pentecost until the day the Lord comes to take us to be with him. Uh, a perfect depiction of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of all churches that have ever existed. And so by studying what the Lord has to say to these seven churches, we can find ourselves in it. We can find the good things and the bad things, the things that we need to straighten out. And the greatest insight of all is, is that we can see from God's point of view what makes a healthy church, and since Christians are the church, what makes a healthy, vibrant, effective, productive, blessed Christian. And so, 
as we've been seeing in our whirlwind tour of modern-day Turkey, where all seven are located, we have met six different churches. And we'll take a look at that map again. And I'll just refresh your memory. We've been first to Ephesus. The congregation there knew their Bible very well. They could find a verse like this, but they had lost their first love. I don't know if you've ever met somebody who's really smart in the Bible, but very unloving. And that was their problem. They needed to repent about that. Then we went to Smyrna, a congregation who were undergoing severe persecution. Uh, the Lord encouraged them to endure and let them realize the reward that was waiting for them to inspire them to faithful living. Then we went to Pergamum, the congregation who were compromising by allowing false teaching to come into their, uh, their church. They needed to repent. Then we went to Thyatira. The congregation there was tolerating sexual immorality, and they needed to repent. From Thyatira, we went to Philadelphia. The congregation there had little strength, but the Lord had opened a door for them, a door of opportunity, and they walked through, and they were doing great things for God. And now, number seven, Laodicea, infamous for being lukewarm, the lukewarm church that needed to repent. Thanks, Adam. Now, notice before we even dive in and get started that five of the seven churches need to repent. Five of the seven. Because repentance is a way of life. It is not a one-time thing. Oh, I, uh, I repented myself in 1979. I became a Christian. But I repent every day because the word repent, the verb that Jesus uses in all of the New Testament writers, is in the present continuous. It means when the Lord says in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel, the time has come. It means repent, change your mind, and keep changing your mind. Believe, put your trust in me and the gospel, and keep on trusting. It's something that we kind of lose in the translation a little bit. And so we see, you know, you expect to see so, and there were so many good things said about the church. But five of the seven, a call to repent because it's a lifestyle. Uh, course corrections every day. The Christian should start the day with repentance. There'll be something if you let the Holy Spirit tell you, I promise you, if you ask the Lord, Lord, is there something I need to correct? you will have a prayer answered. <laughs> and then you make that course correction. That is metanaeo in the Greek. It just means to turn. He says, yes, uh, about that attitude last night, talk about self-centered. And you're like, you know, that's what you have to do. You don't have to make the noise like me, but that's what you have to do. You got to turn around. So there's no such thing as a perfect church since there's no perfect people. If you do happen to find a perfect church, please don't go there, because if you do, it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> Get it? Because you're there. <laughs> now, or me, it works both ways. So repentance is a daily 
thing. Now, let's take a, a look now at the last stop. The bus has pulled into the parking lot at the congregation there at Laodicea. It's time to go in through the front doors, get greeted, and find out what this church is all about, if you want to, because it is the congregation that made the Lord ill when he thought about it. So let's go through the doors and see what the Lord is talking about. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, oh, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need anything. But you don't realize that actually you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I'm at the, the door, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we are going to follow a simple pattern which the Lord uses every time he writes to these churches or speaks to them. You know, I noticed something right away that the Lord uses a pattern. Somebody might say, Lord, could you just mix it up a little bit? Where's the leading of the Holy Spirit? You know, you're so predictable. You say the same thing in the same way. You just follow the same outline. What's wrong with you? Loosen up a little bit. Well, there's a greeting, always. A self-description that is fitting to the particular church, always. Next, always, comes a commendation. Here's what you're doing right. Now, Usually, everyone gets something good said about them, even the dead church at Sardis, the sardines. Remember them? <laughs> they, they got a shout out because some of them weren't dead. And so, but this church gets nothing. It's the only church, Laodicea, that doesn't receive a shout out for doing something good. Next, after the commendation, comes the concern. Here's what you're doing wrong. After that comes a correction every single time. Because, you know, the Lord is so compassionate. He'll always rebuke, but he will always give a remedy. He never tells you to correct something without telling you how. And so he tells them what's wrong, and then he tells them how to fix it. And then finally, he always closes with an up note on a positive. He's a, it's a commitment if you want to keep all seas. They're a commitment to bless those who take to heart his word. He wants to say, and he says in essence, here's what's waiting for you. Does that help inspire you to live faithfully for me? Now, the greeting. 
The Lord addresses these folks at Laodicea. It's one of the wealthiest city. In fact, it is the wealthiest church of all seven, and it is the wealthiest city of all seven, perhaps in all of Asia Minor. Quoting from commentator Mounts, it's frequently noted that Laodicea prided itself on three things, financial wealth and extensive textile industry. They were well known for their clothing, especially black thread, and so that they were had these exquisite, elaborate clothing uh, industry there, and a popular eye salve, which was exported around the world. They were so wealthy that commentator Barclay points out that a devastating earthquake happened in AD 70. I mean, they were leveled. And it says here that they didn't need outside help. They didn't ask for any, and they didn't want it. And here's what Barclay says. Laodicea was too rich to accept help from anyone. Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us Laodicea arose from her ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us. Now, they had that attitude with Rome, and they had that attitude toward heaven. Cutting to the chase, Jesus said of them, you always say, I'm rich. I've got lots of money in the bank. I don't need anything. I got this. The motto of this church at Laodicea was, we got this. We got it handled. We don't sense any desperate need. They weren't ever singing Michael W. Smith's I'm Desperate for You chorus. That was for other churches like the other six. They had it together. How ironic is this? The congregation that had the most resources than all the other churches had the greatest rebuke of all the other churches. All the other churches are like, man, what a, uh, how did they luck out? They got blessed to live in Laodicea where the money just keeps flowing and industry, everybody's working and there's affluence. That would be the answer if only we just had a little bit more resources and money like most people think. Just more money, it's the answer. Well, it's not their answer. Affluence is not a friend to Laodicea, nor is it to really anybody. Jesus said, you know what? Watch out. It's harder for somebody of affluence to come to heaven. It's easier, in fact, that for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to sense their need of anything, including God, and to humble themselves and come to heaven. You see, I was flipping the channels recently and I saw a show, How the Lottery Ruined My Life. <laughs> I mean, seriously, nobody believes it and you just got to pause there because it's like, really? And this gal was talking about she won $13 million and now she's in jail with nothing. And it's just like, I know what you're thinking. It would never happen to me. <laughs> and, you know, Lord, trust me, I would be different. But uh, I'm not so sure. Perhaps that's why we don't have $13 million. Amen? Yeah. All right, moving along. <laughs> Resources and material goods, as I often say, they are morally neutral. 
There's nothing inherently good about being poor, and, there, and, and there's nothing inherently uh, wicked about money or resources. A lot of Bible heroes had a lot of wealth. It's our response to the riches. You know how many people in the world think they know what the Bible says, and they'll always say, well, you know what it says in the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. And I always have to speak up and say, excuse me, <laughs> The Bible says, the love of money. Money is neutral, friend. It can be used for good purposes and bad. It's the love of money. Uh, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, the Laodiceans had wandered from their zealous, vibrant Christian devotion Uh, and to a boring, empty, ho-hum Christian experience. And why do we think that they went from hot to lukewarm? Well, because Paul the Apostle mentions Laodicea and the congregation four times in the letter to the Colossians, their neighbors. Once in chapter 2, three times in chapter 4, and he talks about them as a viable church. He doesn't say anything negative about them. They're a a happening church at the time of the writing of the Apostle Paul. But something's happened. The affluence has not helped them. It has hindered them. Well, you remember that the names of the churches eerily are like a prophetic definition of what they struggle with. Ephesus, the word means to let go or to relax. And of course, they let go of their first love. Smyrna means to be crushed or bitter. And of course, they were being crushed and had a bitter experience of persecution. Laodicea means, from two words, it means ruled by the people. It was a democracy. The congregation was calling the shots. No, so, so since this church is last in the prophetic line, uh, scholars say that it would represent the period of church history that exists at the time the Lord returns. Soft, weak, boring, indifferent, compromised, lots and lots of resources, and little life. Now that would keep, would be, in keeping, rather, with the Lord's remarks about the state of the world at the time of his coming. In Matthew 24, he said, oh, in that day when I come, uh, many will fall away from the Christian faith. They will depart. And it's also in keeping with Paul's depiction of the last days uh, with a great falling away uh, from the Christian faith. Here's a quote. Affluence had dulled their spiritual senses. They could take care of themselves physically. They could take care of themselves spiritually, they thought. They didn't feel a desperate need for the Lord and certainly didn't need a pastor to direct them in a straight and narrow path, one that involved sacrifice, denying self, enduring persecution, and all of that. Their affluence gave birth to a democratic thinking, The congregation decided how they would live their Christian lives and with an eye toward personal convenience and creature comforts. They found a way to have it both ways, to please God and to please the world, to have their cake and to eat it too, 
and this is what nauseated the Lord. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 3 says, Paul, speaking through the Holy Spirit, a time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires. They, the church, the congregation, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So the Laodiceans, they wanted a me-centered gospel, and there were plenty of guys out there to scratch where they were itching, especially for the right amount of money. So they are lukewarm. They need to go from 75 degrees Fahrenheit to boiling, which would be 212 Fahrenheit. So the Lord has to start, and this is where you always start when you're backslidden, a fresh vision of Christ, a renewed understanding of who's on the other end of that prayer. And that's always uh, the remedy for any kind of spiritual problem is a glimpse of Jesus Christ in all of his glory as the resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't get that, though. (laughs) I was talking and sharing the gospel with a backslider recently and noticed that they could not use the word Jesus or Father or God. It was all it. I just have a problem with it. And it just became it. And I said, did you notice that? Let me help you with the name. Jesus, say the word because it's a person. Let's, let's practice that. And um, uh, yeah, that wasn't well received. But, you know, I thought it was the truth. It's easy to turn away from it. It's harder to turn away from him. That's what it is. Whenever anybody tells me, you know, my, my Aunt Marge is really into it. <laughs> I just say, well, that's too bad because I'm not talking to you about it. I'm talking to you about a loving heavenly father and a relationship with a living Lord who is a person. He has a name. So it's not about a principle. Christianity is not about a principle. It's about a person. It's not about rules that keep you. It's about arms that hold you in love. That is Christianity. And so... Knowing that they're lukewarm at 75 degrees and just bland and pathetic, he wants to heat them up. And what is he going to do? He's going to greet them with a picture, a renewed vision of who he is. So here's what he says, calling all lukewarm believers in Laodicea, listen up, it's me. God's last word, kind of a unique title for himself. He says, I'm the amen. The amen is speaking. Well, can I get an amen? (laughs) All right. God's truth is what that means. In Isaiah chapter 65, the title for God is the God of truth. It's Elohim, amen. It means God, truth. And that is exactly what amen means. But it's really God's truth personified in a person. He says, nothing, and this is what it means, nothing happens through God except through my stamp 
I'm the stamp of God's authority for all that he does and is. I am the amen. And after me, God has nothing to say, period. Jesus Christ, done. There's nothing left to say. All the wisdom and insight and treasures, everything we need, because he is God poured in to a human body. He says, I am the amen. And then that leads to the the next point. He says, I am the faithful witness. So witness to what? He says, I am the God of truth who came down to witness, to tell you about how to get to heaven, heaven, and who lives there. And my assessment, therefore, of you in the harsh words to come can be trusted. He's the witness. He says, I'm witnessing this and I'm faithful. And I got it right, believe me. I'm going to use some words about you, and you're going to think, what? Are you kidding me? But who am I? I'm the truth of God. I'm the amen. There's no but, 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 but after I speak and tell you, here's what I see in your life. I'm a dependable, credible witness. I am the God who made you, who sees you, who knows everything, and I'm about to say I've been all over the place and I've been looking at you and I've got an assessment and I want you to listen to it. So really, the third point there when he says, and by the way, I rule the universe, awesome. Here's what he's saying. I've got some hard things to tell you in the next paragraph, things you might not want to hear or accept. But you know what? I'm the truth. It is the truth. You can believe me. And number three, because I am ruler of the universe, you better believe me. And so that's really how he opens up there. So the Laodiceans can consider themselves greeted. Now it's time to hear what you're doing right. Oh, whoops, there's nothing to say there. So we fast forward to what we are doing wrong. Roman numeral number two, then. Here's a paraphrase of 15 and 16. Now, I know all about it, what you're like there. You're not cold. You're not hot. You know, I'd actually prefer that you were one or the other, but you're lukewarm. Not very appetizing, is it? You know, you're thirsty. You take a swig of water, expecting refreshment, but it's warm water and yuck. Makes you want to spit it out. That's how I'm feeling with your brand of Christianity. Yuck. Now, they're lukewarm. It's really a metaphor, of course, for blasé. And blasé means uninterested because of frequent indulgence or unconcerned or nonchalant. He says, you know what, folks, you've just cooled down to room temperature, and that's a very unappealing place to be. Here are some adjectives to describe lukewarm. Bland, stale, tasteless, insipid, colorless, dull, unexciting. A lukewarm Christian is a fence walker. They're indifferent. They're apathetic. They're spiritual Switzerland, if you will. (laughs) Now, if you are Swiss, my apologies <laughs> for saying that. We love your cheese, but there's something about your neutrality that isn't good. Now, two theological possibilities here for a lukewarm 
Christian. You're either a genuine Christian who's in a season of non-fellowship with the Lord, you're dried up, you're disconnected, you're saved, but you're carnal and worldly for the moment. You're neither here nor there. You're just drifting, but you're saved. Possible. It happens. Or you're a church-going person. You have Christian values and morals. You like Christian things, but you're lukewarm because your heart is empty of the warmth of God's Spirit who gives you life. So it's one or the other. Now, the analogy is just so easy to understand, but more so for them. Did you know that they may be affluent, but they had a problem geographically. They had a problem with their water supply. Now, I was standing in Laodicea, and the tour guide talked about it's still an issue. They don't have a water supply. They get their water from a hot spring eight kilometers away in a place called Hierapolis. And they had an aqueduct, those eight kilometers, and by the time the hot water got all the way to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And so the Lord is doing something here that we wouldn't know. He's saying, He's pulling something that they know quite well that every day they go to that water. It was loaded with calcium carbonate as well. It was unpleasant in its uh, flavor and in its temperature. It couldn't, they, they took a mouthful and they wanted to spit it out. And he says, you know what? That's how I feel about this kind of Christianity that you're living. He says, listen, you're not excited about praying about talking to the ruler of the universe, coming into the throne room of God, puts you to sleep. He says, you're bored. You check out during worship. Worship of the living God, enthroned on the praises of his people, but you're out doing your own thing. You're uninterested, boring. Can we get this over with? The worship of God. He says, you have zero interest in the Bible You have unsaved people all around you, and you know full well where they're headed for eternity. Ho-hum, big yawn. No care. Don't care because you're lukewarm. He says, when I think that somebody is looking at you because you're a professed representative of me, the ruler of the universe, you are telling people, Look at me, this is relationship with the living God, and they see your surface, fake, superficial, religious Christian life. He says, you know what, I I get queasy. I get queasy. The word in the Greek that the King James has is vomit. I get sick. And, and I can't blame him if he's thinking, you know, onlookers who I died for that I want in heaven are being emboldened by your insipid Christianity to keep going off the cliff. And they're looking at you and you're saying, this is it, watch me. Blah, boring. He says, oh, I can't, I just, I just, sorry. Okay, I think, I think you get it. He says he's not very happy. Now, then he says something strange. He says, you know what? I prefer you cold over lukewarm. Because 
when you're cold, you can feel your need for the heat. I can do something with cold, and of course I prefer hot. Hot is wonderful. But cold is useful too, because I can show somebody, hey, you're freezing here, buddy. How about the warmth of God's love and eternal life and the constant companionship and love of a father that you never had. Oh boy, I feel I'm cold. I hear the warm. I'm drawn to it. See, he can do something. He said, I'd rather you cold because I can do something. The Pharisees were lukewarm, religious kinds of people. They had the living God in a human body five feet in front of them, unmoved, because they had a lukewarm religious experience. Now, who was cold? Mary Magdalene, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. They were frozen. (laughs) They were dead. But he said to the Pharisees, the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes are breaking down the doors and entering heaven way before you religious, lukewarm people. Why? Because they could see, I'm cold, that's hot, I know where I am. But the lukewarm person who goes to church seven times a week and carries a Bible and a hymnal and prays all the time, but doesn't know the Lord. How how do you deal with that? It's like they've been inoculated with a dead form of Christianity to prevent them from ever catching the real thing. (laughs) Amen? Amen. Well... Notice the self-deceit when somebody is in that condition. He says, I hear what you're saying. I know your assessment of yourself, but I'm about to make an assessment. You are always saying, well, I've got plenty of money and I'm set financially, so you know I have everything I need. But here's the truth. The faithful dependent witness, the ruler of the universe speaking, I got five words for you when I think of your Christian life. Wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, wretched, it means to be afflicted and oppressed. Uh, You know, a great word or phrase would be messed up through and through. That's a wretched person. Now, uh, pitiful means to be hopeless and sad without recourse. Poor, the word there is destitute. Just morally bankrupt. Not one penny of goodness. Just zero. Then blind. In ignorance to reality. That you can't even know. You're about to plunge off a cliff. And you can't see. You're completely and utterly lost. And naked. Really, that terrible, embarrassing, or humiliation, the understanding of being exposed. Those are the five words that the Lord says, you see yourself a certain way, but it's really my assessment that matters. And he says, these are the five things. Here's a great quote. These are adjectives all genuine Christians know to be true, of themselves without the Lord, who we are without God's grace. In fact, we would gladly add to that list with many other unflattering adjectives. 
If you have to be told these things or convinced they are true of you, you're obviously in a pre-Christian state. Jesus must evangelize you by telling uh, you the bad news first so that you will embrace the good news that there's grace to cover our shame in a spirit who's transforming us into new people. These five adjectives, I, I love them. I call them the morning five. I start, and you should too, every single morning and say, Lord, even though I know myself apart from your grace to be wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, shamefully naked, that's me every morning. And may I add five more adjectives. That is who we are, and nobody will Ever get through the gates of eternal life until you own those five as yourself. That is who you are. Now, the second we confess that and we're convinced, and sometimes God has to do some miraculous interventions to prove that those five things are true. As soon as we get that, we get a new spirit. We become covered and transformed, and now we are more than those five adjectives, but those five adjectives live. They live. Think about your life in the last week. They live on. Apart from the grace of God, they're in there. The Holy Spirit helps us to overcome them. But we accept that's who we are, and we enjoy his grace instead of loathing ourselves. Where then is there room for self-esteem? Well, let me show you. This is where you get your self-esteem, Christian. Not in your five adjectives, because that's who you are. But in that God Almighty created you for good purposes. You belong to God. That God demonstrated your worth by hanging himself on a cross, a piece of wood that he himself created. How valuable are you that the God of heaven and earth bled and died and laid down his life for you and called you? That's where you find your self-esteem. That's where we find our worth. Now, nothing short of an encounter with this living God, this truth, this faithful witness, this ruler of the universe is ever going to help us to own up to those five adjectives. It's hard enough. We always think of ourselves as good, moral, decent human beings. You know, when they say, hey, list the top five adjectives to describe yourself. You know what? No one's going to go to this list. And as soon as you start dating somebody, you do everything to show that you're not that kind of person, you see? And then little by little, you have to show your fiancé or your spouse who you really are, a little at a time, and see if they can still love you that way. Well, God helps us to see that. And as soon as I say, Lord, you know what? I'm miserable. I'm a wretch. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, I heard about this memorial service where they refused to sing wretch and they changed the word to someone like me. We don't want to say it. We don't want to bow down and say, I'm a wretch. I could never get to heaven without your help. But it's true. The Lord has to show us And the second I say it, Lord, I'm a miserable wretch. He says, you know what? You're my son. Are you kidding me? 
You see, when I admit it, he doesn't have to put my face in it. He says, listen to me. You're my son. You have an inheritance. You're whiter than snow as I'm confessing the truth of my brokenness. He's lavishing out my esteem in him and the truth of who I really am becoming. Do you see? That's so important. Don't let him have to convince you of the five adjectives. Just, just tell him, that's me, and I really need your help to walk in humility. And how humble will you be when you admit to your total depravity? You will be so dependent. You will be singing, Lord, I'm desperate for you. That will become your favorite chorus. Lord, I'm desperate for you. The correction section. Now, just amazing. After the Holy Spirit knocks the wind out of these lukewarm, kind of Christian kind of knots, he says, I've got some counsel for you. He says, number one, get your gold from me. So stop punching the clock, laboring for what is temporary only. Serve me. Put me first, and all these things will fall into place. Isaiah 55, verse 2. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Listen to me. Listen, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Jesus, in John chapter 6, said, Why are you guys chasing me down for the bread? Think about spiritual things when you come after me and all your labors. And he says, this is what you need to do. Trust in God. So we need to change our focus from working for finances and material goods and seeking the kingdom of God. Labor with me, he says. So he says, exchange your wonderful affluence for gold refined by fire. So he says, now listen, when you start serving me, I'll provide for you, but it may be refined by fire. Why refined by fire? Why is there no persecution? They're 40 miles from where they're killing Christians. They're 40 miles from that. Why aren't they killing these guys? Because they're lukewarm. They're not a problem. People don't even know they're Christians. So he says, listen, you might have to lose your jobs and you'll get gold Refined through the fire. You may take a pay cut because now you're serving me, but I will trade you your affluence for riches toward God. That's really the meaning that's put there. Now, the commitment from the Lord, he says, and by the way, I know these are very harsh words, but it's because I love you. I correct you. In love, if I didn't care, I'd just let you go your way. So take this seriously and turn around. I'm right here. I'm at the door. Can you hear me knocking? This is a door that you must open. And if you do, we'll be restored like two good friends sharing a good meal together. And everything will be okay. Now, you know, the Lord had said some terrible things. I mean, awesome. Starting with the spewing out of the mouth. You know, when you think, when Jesus looks at you face to face and says to you, you know what, your kind of Christianity makes me ill, and here are the five words for you. Wow. And then he says, and don't get the wrong idea. I love you. I love you 
if I didn't love you, I wouldn't even be involved in correcting you. I would let you go on your way. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Proverbs 27 and verse 6. Listen to this. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. He says, I love you, Laodiceans. You're you're in this. You're going to win this thing. Listen to me. I'm right here. I can help you. I'm not done with you. Remember, one of the most awful verses in the Bible to me is when the Lord is brought before King Herod, a wicked, wicked person who, who beheaded John the Baptist. And in him was really nothing good at all. And when he saw the Lord, here's what the, the gospel says. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see a miracle be performed. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus answered him not a word. He done with him. Done. When God is done speaking to a human soul, it's over. He says, I'm talking to you. I'm in dialogue with you. And that's proof that I love you. He says, make the connection. When you feel the spank and you know it's from heaven, know this. It's because I love you. It's a guarantee that everything's okay because you're in the plan. It's very evidence that God is with you and loves you by the very way that he's dealing with you. Last quote before we finish up here. Tolerance of bad behavior that injures, patting somebody on the back who's bent on destroying himself is actually a sign of hate. The only love here is the love of the person's acceptance and admiration that you want. You'd rather be in good standing with said person than risk the rejection that could come by telling them the terrible truth. That kind of weakness is not love, though it masquerades as such. Jesus will take the risk of offending these people in order to see them come to life and get out of harm's way, and that is biblical love done Christ's way. A writer that I read in a commentary So he says, be glad you've heard this rebuke. It's a guarantee that you're still in the game. Not only that, that you can win this thing. So here's how he closes it out. And this is, if, if you think Jesus' opening words took their breath away, imagine hearing them go from what we just heard to this. Now, listen, I love you. I'm disciplining you. Those who trust in me and those who overcome, I will give them the right to sit with me upon my throne. As a man living among you once, I had to overcome, and now I sit upon my father's throne. This will be your pattern as well. You will overcome and sit upon my throne with me, ruling with me in the kingdom that's coming quickly. Did he mention that he is the ruler of the universe and that they will be seated on his throne? So I can just hear somebody in the congregation say, okay, excuse me, let me get this right. Now, me, the wretched, 
messed up, pitiful, helpless, poverty-stricken, morally bankrupt, spiritually ignorant, and shamefully naked me will be given a throne to share with the ruler of the universe. The Lord says, yes, that is the gospel, that I can take somebody like you, change your heart by how? By all of your terrible, awful effort? No, by you opening a door and letting my spirit come in and cooperating with him by trusting They said in John chapter 6, Lord, what must we do to do the works that God required? He says, believe the one he sent. That's it. Trust me. Let me in. I'll, I'll do the rest. You cooperate with me as I raise you to new life. That's the gospel. And, and what's the one thing he's asking? Well, a, a famous painting by a famous uh, artist got a hold of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 here. And he did a, a beautiful portrait that we've all seen before. And I was reading about him. And he said, I painted it. And then I invited my friends. And I said, look at my new painting. I, will, I would like you to critique it. And so people critiqued it. And one man said to him, Where's the door handle? He said, exactly. Revelation chapter 3. The door of the heart only has a handle on the inside. And the Lord talked to a previous church and said, I opened the door for you. Now he tells this church, you must open the door. Do you hear me? Do you hear me trying to get through to you? Do you hear me through your life circumstances? Do you hear me through your conscience? Do you hear me through creation? Do you hear me through Christian friends? Do you hear me through the preacher? Do you hear me through the Bible? Do you hear me through gay love? Do you hear me through your wife? Do you hear me through your husband? Do you hear that? I'm not going to open that door. The command is, If you hear and you want and you choose, you open. Give me an inch and I'll take a mile. <laughs> That's how he is. That's how he is, isn't he? You just open the door a little bit. He comes in and he helps us. He softens our heart. He changes us. He makes us new inside. And he takes us from 75 degrees to 212 by his spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, none of us want to be lukewarm. All of us sort of know the feeling of seasonal lukewarmness. Father, now we have a fresh understanding how unappealing that is to you. And for various reasons, which we agree So help us to share your perspective on a blasé kind of Christian attitude in life. Father, help us to keep our zeal burning bright by staying in your word, staying in fellowship, 
trusting and obeying and walking with you in love so that we burn brightly for you. In Christ's name, amen.